So Money episode 1227, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. It's Ask Farnoosh Friday. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi, July 16th, 2021. Hope you're having a great Friday. I am at the beach, actually, with my family. We've been at the beach all week. Wanted to make sure that I did record a fresh episode of Ask Farnoosh before I left for vacation. The questions have been piling up, and I want to make sure we don't fall too far behind. We have questions about how to apply for a mortgage when one spouse, namely the husband, is out of work, risks to closing old credit cards, even though you're not really using them anymore. The best investing books, in my opinion, and whether or not to go in on a home purchase with someone that you are just dating, seriously, but just dating. More on my thoughts in just a moment. First, let's review the week. In case you missed any of the episodes this week, we heard from Jordan Shapiro on Monday, who is a multi-bestselling author. His latest book is called Father Figure, How to Be a Feminist Dad. Jordan spent many years researching this book. He is himself a father. As Jordan writes, gender norms are changing and old economic models are facing disruption. As a result, parenthood and family life are undergoing an existential transformation. And he has a lot of stories and advice in his book on how to parent in this 21st century, exploring fatherhood and masculinity. Very fascinating stuff. That was on Monday. And then on Wednesday, we had on psychologist and author Ron Friedman, author of Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. This really spoke to me, this book, this idea, this notion of reverse engineering, whatever it is you want to achieve in your life, whether it's trying to get out of debt, become an early retiree, buy a home, start a business. Of course, we have to attribute our success stories sometimes to things like privilege and luck. But there's something to be said about having a good strategy, right? And in his book, Ron talks about how for generations we've been taught there are just two ways to succeed, either from talent or practice. But now he is shedding light on a path that has quietly launched icons in a wide range of fields. I'm talking artists, writers, chefs, athletes, entrepreneurs, and it is reverse engineering. You might be already doing this in your life. You might have already attributed your success to this. And so on our show, we talk about how to reverse engineer things like financial goals, career success. We've all got the ability to do this. And that's what I loved about our conversation. It is really applicable to everybody. So check out Ron on Wednesday's episode of So Money. Let's head over to the iTunes section and pick our reviewers of the week. You know, last week, because we ran a rerun over the July 4th week, I did not get a chance to pick a fresh review and award this person a free 15-minute money session. So I'm going to pick two people this week. First, we're going to say thank you to Saver Kate, who left a review saying this podcast can change your life. Highly recommend this podcast regardless of where you are on your financial journey. Farnoosh is great at explaining the nuanced aspects of personal finance in an accessible way. She provides actionable advice for pretty much anyone, strategies to pay down debt, negotiate a raise, invest and save for the future. It's been really rewarding to build my financial knowledge and exercise more power and choice in my life. 
Thank you so much, Saber Kate. And also Carlos uh, from San Antonio, who wrote uh, last month, I love listening to new episodes from So Money. I just recently realized that the Black Wealth Matters episodes from 2020 were a separate podcast series on the podcast app. Glad I found them. Thanks for the conversation. Yes. And anyone who's interested in going back in time or for the first time listening to the Black Wealth Matters episodes that we did all of June in 2020, they are their own album as well as being in the So Money podcast. If you go back through the archives, you can find them on the So Money podcast website or wherever you get your podcasts. But also I created a dedicated album. So you could just Google or go onto any search engine and type in Black Wealth Matters, Farnoosh Tarabi, and it should show up pretty quickly. That entire album of, I believe, 10 or 12 conversations with everyone from Queen Latifah to Tiffany Alice, the budgetista, incredible humans who are changing the world, inspiring stories within the Black community. So thank you, Carlos, for reminding me to tell everybody about the album. Carlos and Saver Kate, please be in touch and let me know you left these kind reviews. You can email me, Farnoosh at SoMoneyPodcast.com. You can direct message me on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi. Let me know you left the review. I will send you a link to select a free 15-minute time slot for us to chat about whatever you like. On a personal note, I've been trying to get started on writing my book. It's one of those things where I just feel like in the beginning, it's such an uphill battle to get yourself, even getting your brain wrapped around this massive project, right? Where do you begin? And I'm in that phase right now, trying to figure out how to structure my day to include some writing every single day, because that's the key, right? You've got how many tens of thousands of words to write by a deadline. It really, you know, got to reverse engineer it as Ron would suggest, Ron Friedman. Yeah. So I'm writing a book uh, in case you are like, what are you talking about, Farnoosh? I did mention this a couple of weeks ago. I got a book deal, my fourth book after several years of not writing a book. I'm excited to announce that I'm writing a memoir called A Healthy State of Panic, Winning at Life, when the world is out to get you. It is my best advice on everything pertaining to life and money and motherhood and work. Advice that's based on years of being conditioned to trust nobody. You know, I'm a daughter of immigrants. And while my parents came here bright-eyed and ambitious and instilled in me a work ethic and a desire to achieve whatever I wanted and go for it, uh, along the way, they scared the hell out of me. (laughs) You know, don't trust anyone. Looking back, of course, it's hilarious stuff. But in the moment, in the uh, in the experience of living my life, I was petrified. And even to this day, I'm that adult woman who, you know, skeptical of the man parked outside my house, taking photos of my house, convinced he's going to come back as a home invader and he's going to chop us up into little pieces. And then only to realize he's a home appraiser doing his job. This is me. And so this book, you're going to get a more of a 360 of who I am, but how all of my life experiences and my the lens through which I see the world has informed my decisions in life, which I feel really good about. You know, I feel really good about my career, my family, my financial choices. I made a lot of decisions when I didn't have a lot of answers. I had to make quick choices. I bought a house in a pandemic. I didn't know it was going to work out. It did. If nothing else, this book will hopefully make you laugh, make you feel seen because maybe you also have experienced these fears in your life. Um, It's inspired by some comedy writing that I did a few years ago 
where I realized I might have more stories to tell. Anyway, I should stop talking about it and should start writing, but I look forward to keeping you all posted on the progress. It's coming out in early 2023, but hopefully it will be worth the wait. Speaking of waiting, you waited long enough. Let's hit the mailbag and answer our listeners' questions for this week. First up is our friend Mariah, who says, my friend, Mariah's friend, has an issue. I have a friend just under 30 who has been married for a little over a year and they have a nine-month-old baby. Her husband has been out of work because of COVID for about a year. My friend, she has her master's in nursing. He gets unemployment and both work together to pay the bills. My friend has been uncomfortable in their rental apartment for some time due to the new baby and would like to buy a house so they can spread out a little more. She's wondering if she should wait for when her husband is employed or if she can go ahead and buy and then refinance once he's situated in a new job. Both still have sufficient savings that can be used toward a purchase and their lease will be expiring in the next few months, so they have to make a decision. Do you have any advice on applying for a home without the spouse and any tips for it not to feel like an emasculating experience for him since it will initially be in her name only? Thanks so much. All right, Mariah. Before I answer this question about, you know, the pros and cons to applying for a mortgage as a solo applicant with your spouse not on the application, I want to take a giant step back and really understand what is going on here. They've been through a pretty hard year, as we've all been through an incredibly difficult year emotionally. Although he's unemployed, it doesn't sound like they're struggling financially. They're still making their rent. They're still paying their bills. They still have savings. She's still employed. So all of that is good. The thing that seems to be bothering her, understandably, as a new mother with now three of them instead of two, and of course being locked down for so many months and over a year, is the size of their home. It sounds like she's making a big jump going from we're renting and it's too small to now I want to buy. Why not continue to rent for another year, somewhere bigger, more spacious, maybe an extra bedroom or an additional office, more square footage. I get that she wants to bring convenience into her life. She wants more space in their life, but that doesn't necessarily mean buying right now. I would recommend that they look at renting for at least one more year. They might be able to find a really good deal on rent right now, depending on where they live. We often forget about renting and we often dismiss renting because we've been sold this ideal, right? That buying is the ultimate, that buying equals building wealth, that you have to do it sooner rather than later. But I want to encourage her to kind of just think about what it is in her life right now that needs support, more room, right? You can get more room by renting. Now, she's also got a spouse that's unemployed. It will be incredibly difficult for the two of them to qualify for a loan. Going in by yourself as one spouse to take on a mortgage for the two of you. I know a friend who did this. It can work, but that may require narrowing your search. You may not qualify for as big of a loan, right? Because now there's looking at one person's salary instead of combining those incomes together. It's just that one person's salary. And so are there homes on the market that she would be happy, more than happy living in? given that the loan would just be based on her salary. Do that research as well and just see what comes up. 
Would she be in love with some of these homes? Maybe it's a smaller home because it's just on her salary, but would it work? But even then, I wouldn't want her to make this hasty decision. I mean, she's got to be out of this place in two months, in a few months. That's not really giving yourself a lot of time to pre-qualify for a mortgage, educating yourself on the market, narrowing down homes, visiting those homes, making an offer. I mean, this to me seems like something where they would really benefit from giving themselves some time. And I'm not even going to address the emasculating part of this because... If that's really a concern, this is like going to become a two-hour podcast. I mean, the thing is, if you truly would feel emasculated because of this, then they need to really take a pause and discuss their relationship and the roles that they have. And I mean, I would just send you my book, When She Makes More, where the whole thing is about how to thrive in your relationship as the female breadwinner, as your life shifts, as the economics in your marriage change. And when there might be some feelings, whether that's she feeling resentful, he feeling emasculated, it's all in that book. So read the book. It is a whole separate issue. I would hate it to be the reason that Um, You know, if she really decides to go forward as the solo borrower on this mortgage, the solo applicant, that that be the reason she doesn't do it. It shouldn't be for that reason. Um, It should be because maybe she wants to, as a couple, go in on this, maybe because combining their incomes, it will mean a higher borrowing amount. They can get a a nicer house, a bigger house, et cetera, a more comfortable house. I just want to focus on whether or not this seems like a rational decision right now. And I think that given the short period of time that they have before they have to move out, it would behoove them to just give themselves another year, move up into the rental world, get something bigger, and then use the next year to plot. And her husband, not under this duress of, oh my gosh, now we have a mortgage and I really need to contribute and step up, take on some job that he really doesn't want to take on because it's it's paying a salary. That's the other piece of this too. You never want to feel like you're forced into a job that you don't love or don't even like a lot because of your financial obligations. Thanks so much for calling in, writing in on behalf of your friend. You're a good friend. Morgan has a question regarding credit cards. She has two, both of which she opened back in college. She does not carry a balance on either of these cards. She's hesitant to close them though, due to the longevity of the credit lifespan, but they don't have any perks or rewards. And she was thinking of opening up another card with more breadth of reward options. But the thought of having three credit cards, she says, makes me hesitant. Is three a reasonable number of credit cards to have? I just feel like I'm missing out on opportunities for reward travel by having less than desirable card options. Thanks so much for your thoughts. All right, Morgan, you know, I get this question a lot, like how many credit cards is appropriate? I always say it's not about the number of credit cards that you have, but it's about how you are managing those cards, right? So if you're coming to me and saying like, I have debt, I'm carrying balances, and I want to open up another card because over here I saw you could get, you know, some free miles if you opened up this card over here. That sounds sloppy to me. I'd say you need to focus on the credit cards that you have, get out of that debt. And then once you are debt free, 
like you are, Morgan, look at the credit card landscape and start to be a little bit more strategic about the cards that you're using. This doesn't mean you have to close your other cards. When you're talking about your credit score, like let's talk about the credit score because the credit score doesn't care how many credit cards you have in your wallet. Now, I will say that they do like to see that you have a variety of credit, that you have credit cards, maybe a car loan, a student loan, a mortgage, that variety and breadth of credit that you are managing signals to the credit score calculators that, you know, your credit sophisticated, you know, that you have experience with all different types of credit, term loans, revolving credit, et cetera. And it's even that only a small fraction of your credit score calculation. But you're right that closing cards that have been in your records for many, many years, that does impact your credit score, you know, because 10%, I believe, of your credit score is the length of your credit how long you have been using credit. And and by closing some of these credit cards, it does get rid of eventually the history of those cards and it doesn't get factored into your credit score calculation. So you might want to keep it open for that reason. But more importantly, you keep old credit cards open, even though they may not be active, if they have considerable credit limits, because a big chunk of your credit score is your debt to credit ratio. That means how much money you're spending on your credit cards versus the amount of credit, the line of credit that you have in your name, the totality of that. So let's say you have a credit card and you go to the mall and you spend a hundred bucks on it, but the credit limit on that card is $1,000 or $10,000. It's $100 divided by that 1,000 or 10,000. That's your credit utilization. Keeping that to below 30% is always a good place to be when it comes to nurturing your credit score. If these cards, Morgan, have been in your records for a long time, which they have, it sounds like, they have substantial lines of credit, I'd say thousands of dollars on them, added together, then I would keep them on the books. I would keep them, you don't have to keep them in your wallet. You may want to just to keep them quote unquote active because sometimes credit card companies, if there's been no activity for years, they just cancel the cards on their own (laughs) for you. To prevent that from happening, you could attach a single bill to each of these cards. Maybe it's like a utility or it's your gym membership, something that automatically gets paid for every single month. So you technically don't even have to take it out of your wallet. It's just the card number is assigned to a bill that your checking account then pays for every single billing cycle. That is a way to keep the cards active, though they won't be your primary cards. Now you can go and look for a card that is more robust in its rewards. That might give you some cash back. If you are paying off your balances every single month, you should be rewarded for that, right? Bottom line, keep the cards in your life, keep them quote unquote active, assign a bill to each of them so that the credit card companies don't shut them off so that you get to maintain the credit history on those cards, the credit limits on those cards. All of that is going to be good for your score. Now go and get a third card that you're going to use primarily for your day-to-day uses. There's no rule that says having three cards versus 16 cards, the person with three cards is going to have a higher credit score. Nope. It really comes down to how you are managing the credit. Alrighty, Andrea, 
has a complicated situation regarding a young adult in her life, and she's looking for some creative solutions. She says, my partner of seven years, we're not married and we keep our finances separate, has a daughter who is 17 and planning to go to college this fall. She's never been allowed to earn money or have her own bank account by her family because they receive state assistance. This is because she has siblings with disabilities. And they have been worried that any money she would earn or save would put that assistance in jeopardy. Andrea says, I would like to somehow set her up with an account that she can access digitally that I can contribute a small amount to now and when she's in college and simultaneously help her learn about fiscal responsibility and accountability, ideally while building credit. Is there a solution where I can help set her up for financial success at this juncture that feels so late in the game that's more creative than just giving her cash and hoping for the best? All right. Another great question. I think the first thing we want to talk about is getting a job. You know, I had many jobs in college. It's one of the best ways to learn about money and how to be responsible with money. Something that is not going to interfere with schoolwork. And maybe she does take the first semester of school to just focus on school. And then once she gets her bearings, once she gets to understand her workload, her school workload, and how to better integrate a job, then we save that for second semester. But this is important. This is going to be foundational to her success in her life, I think, you know, and that's maybe a big grand statement, but working, there is just something invaluable about earning your own money and as soon as possible. So if she hasn't had this opportunity in high school, then have it be in college. From there, Once she starts earning money, she has to park it somewhere, right? I would encourage her to find the local credit union on or near campus. Most schools have an associated credit union and open up a bank account there, something that is local and accessible to her. And there you can transfer her money. You can add money to that bank account. At that credit union, she might also eventually want to open up her own credit card. But before that even, and starting right now, you can help her establish credit, either you or your partner adding her to your card as an authorized user. Now, assuming you're good with credit and so is your partner, if one of you wants to tech take on this role, this may not be a bad way for your partner's daughter to start establishing credit by being an authorized user on one of your credit cards. What this means is she's going to essentially become a co-user on your account. She gets her own credit card and you can even set limits. So she can't you know, spend, max out the credit card. She has to maybe stick to a budget that you decide. So it's a great way to keep it under control, especially for a first time credit card user. It's very easy to go out of control. This allows her to establish credit. And even as you are spending money on your credit card and paying off your bills on time, that helps your credit and it also helps her credit. So all of your activities on these co-cards get reported to each of your credit reports. That's good, but could also be bad if one of you slips, forgets to make a payment, then it hurts both of your credit reports. Does that make sense? But this is a great way for parents to acclimate their kids to to having a credit life, to having a credit file, a credit report. If she takes on a student loan as she goes to college, that can also be attached to her credit file and can help her to build credit. But getting the job is my biggest piece of advice here. 
get a job. I had, gosh, what I, I was a hostess. I worked at our local college paper selling advertising. I worked at a place called Nittany Notes on campus at Penn State where, and this is now virtual. So anyone, anywhere, any college student anywhere can probably make money doing this because a lot of the classes teach the same from the same textbook across the country. You know, Psychology 101, you know, whether you go to this school or the school across the state lines, they might be using the same textbook and same, even same syllabus. So I got hired to take notes at all my lectures for a particular class and Nittany Notes would photocopy them and sell them to the students who didn't show up for class. Or in some cases, students would go to class and wanted to get additional notes from another student who was paying attention, who might have been a better note taker. And I made money off of that note taking. There's a lot of different ways, depending on your interests, how much time you have. I think it's more than doable. And I think it should be the first step for her. Okay, next, a listener wants to get my take on the best investing books out there. Corey on Instagram says, I just want to say that I love your show. I heard you speak on the Skim You Money session and I have been listening since. Well, thanks so much, Corey. It's great to connect. I was wondering which investment book do you recommend? I know general terms and I do invest myself, but it's usually mutual funds. I would like to get more investment savvy so I can make my money work for me. Thanks for any suggestions. Okay, so it does sound like you have a pretty basic grip on investing. You probably invest through your work 401k. You understand terms like IRAs and ETFs and mutual funds. Some of the best investing books, I think, are the classics. The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. The Little Book of Common Sense Investing is one that always comes up uh, by John Bogle, who is the founder and former CEO of the Vanguard Group. Everybody loves Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki. It wasn't for me and Robert's been on this show. But if you're into like leveraging debt and using debt to invest, uh, it's a little bit out of my comfort zone, but it is a strategy that many people have taken to practice over the decades. And his book continues to be a number one bestseller. The Simple Path to Wealth. That's Jay Collins. He's been on this podcast, actually. You can look it up. If you go to somoneypodcast.com and you click on investing in the search bar, it will populate all the podcasts that we've done that have focused a little bit or a lot on investing. There's a book called Principles by Ray Dalio. And, and again, this these books may cover a lot of the territory that you're familiar with, but what I like about them is that they all have a philosophy. If you want more modern books, I really like Aaron Lowry's book, Broke Millennials Take on Investing. Again, a simplified version on investing, but investing should be simple, right? To think that you somehow aren't mastering it because your approach has been pretty straightforward, I think is the wrong way to think about it. Investing should be simple. You should invest in low fee index funds, invest in your 401k. If you don't have a 401k, open up an IRA or a 401k and an IRA. A little bit at a time, consistent investing, stick with it. Don't make any knee-jerk changes to your portfolio. And if you've been starting to invest at a young age in your 20s and 30s, my prediction is that you will be happy with what you have netted at the end of the day. Final question here, and it's a good one. Also pertaining to buying a home, 
Ruby writes in, she says, Hey, Farnooch, I love your podcast and listen to the episodes every day during my dog walks. It helps me stay money focused. All right, Ruby, let's see what's going on in your life. She says, I've been in a relationship with a guy for a little less than a year. He's made it clear since we met that he had a goal to buy a house in the next two years. He works in programming and has a very comfortable salary, savings, etc. I have a significant savings as well, a stable investment plan and expendable income for my own life. I am nowhere near financially ready to buy a home. My question is this, how much should I financially and legally participate in his home buying efforts? A lot of costs go into purchasing a home and I'm sure my contribution could be helpful, but maybe unnecessary. Also, if I financially support this and our relationship doesn't last, is that the epic you should have known better moment? Ruby, I think you know what you have to do here. (laughs) I think that all those dog walking sessions, listening to So Money, you have figured it out. And I'm going to perhaps echo what's already going on in your mind. I'm not a fan of going in on a home purchase at this stage in your relationship with your partner. If your partner has goals of buying a home, let him buy a home and you can support that and you can, you know, help him pick out furniture and be involved, but to a limit, right? I don't want you to put any money into this house. I don't want you to sign any legal documents. Not yet. It would not make any sense at this point. And yes, I think that if things didn't work out, it would be the ultimate, oh, I should have known better in hindsight, wouldn't have done this situation. If this was a case where you were already living together, you had had been together for many years, that the commitment level was much greater and more solidified, I'd say, okay, let's talk this through. But even then, it requires a lot of thinking, a lot of planning, and and really understanding what your legal obligations would be, uh, given that uh, you're not married and you're going to be co-signing on a mortgage together. It's way too soon. I mean, at this stage in your relationship, couples might think about like getting a dog together, right? Or moving in together to rent an apartment together. I think it's too early to get so financially involved with a partner. Uh, You haven't even been dating for a year. And I think it's great that he has aspirations to buy a home. You should encourage that. Let him do his thing. Then later on, if y'all are still dating, maybe there's marriage in your future, you can talk about more formal ways to contribute to the mortgage, create a simple agreement that says, you know, me, Ruby, I'm going to pay you X dollars a month to support the mortgage. And I think it's important to recognize that unless you are either on the deed or on the mortgage or both, that you don't have any expectations, right? I assume you don't have any expectations of what you're going to get if he buys this home. Like, And I hope he doesn't have any expectations from you of what you're going to contribute to this home. I think you're at a stage in your relationship, it's early, where if either one of you wants to make a huge financial decision, you should be able to do it independently of one another. And of course, talk about it with one another. If you wanted to start a business, if you wanted to buy a car, if you wanted to invest in Bitcoin, you know, like this is stuff that you might want to obviously talk about with your partner. It's a natural conversation to have, but there should not be any expectations that the other partner is either going to like step in the way or get financially involved with you. Like, I think it's just so early that this stage, you know, you're just encouraging each other to reach your financial potentials is great. And then the day that you do want to get 
together more seriously. Maybe there is an engagement in your future or you're just you know wanting to do more of a long-term committed partnership. Think about it. I mean, at that point, your finances are even stronger. Your goal right now, Ruby, should be to continue to fortify your financial life independently. So that the day when you do want to partner up with somebody, maybe it's this person or a different person, more long-term, it's even better. You know, you're in a much better financial place. I just want to encourage you and your partner to do you. I don't encourage getting involved in this financial, huge financial decision. I mean, buying a home is huge. This isn't like you're buying a couch together or going on a vacation together and splitting the cost. This is like, this will have long-term implications. And that is our show for this Friday. Thanks for hanging out with me. Once again, if you like what you're listening to, if you're not subscribed yet, please hit that subscribe button. It goes a very long way in supporting this show. Share it with a friend, leave a review. Almost every week, I select a reviewer to receive a free 15-minute money session with me. And I hope it's you and me next time. Thanks again. Have a great weekend. And I hope your weekend is so money.